Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. That one in lights are flashing down the quality control. Somebody threw a spanner, they threw him in the hole. Somewhere in a corridor, someone was hurt to sneeze. Goodness me, could this be industrial disease? Hey, welcome to your new job. First, you are lucky to be here. Also, we do not care about you. We offer no job security. This is not a career. We provide no training or career development. We will pay you as little as possible. You will work long hours under constant pressure and with no privacy. We will read your email. HR will not help you. Your managers may not know what they are doing. They also may be abusive. If you file a complaint, you may be fired. You may be fired even though you're doing a good job. You may be fired for no reason at all. We do not offer daycare. There are snacks and beer in the kitchen. So says Dan Lyons in his latest great book, Lab Rats, How Silicon Valley Made Work Miserable for the Rest of Us. He's ours for the hour. Do stay with us. This episode is made possible by Health Warrior, makers of the wonderful superfood, the Health Warrior Chia Bar, which I adore. I literally have an apple cinnamon chia bar every morning. It's new and improved, only has three grams of sugar now. It's delicious. It's almost like an adult Rice Krispie treat. You can buy a sampler box, customer favorite bundles where you can get a 60 count, including the new protein muffin. Um, They're 2018 bundles. They're great pumpkin bundles, healthy indulgence bundles, the chia seeds you can buy by the bag. You must go to healthwarrior.com. You can get free shipping on all orders over $30. And don't forget that darn good apple cinnamon chia bar healthwarrior.com joining me from boston is new york times best-selling author dan lyons his latest is lab rats how silicon valley made work miserable for the rest of us i was in love with his other book disrupted which explored kind of his misadventures in the startup scene he was previously a writer for newsweek you've seen his byline in forbes he has done episodes for the great HBO show Silicon Valley. Of course, we had uh, Jimmy O. Yang, Jin Yang on the show before. But Dan, how are you? I'm good. I didn't know you had Jimmy Yang on the show. That's interesting. Oh, he was great. He's a character. He told us, we found out that he was an Uber driver actually on the side during the first two seasons. He's like, how did you find that out? I was like, well, can you unpack that for us? And he told us that he disappointed his dad by becoming a stand-up comic. And it was a great episode. Wow, I didn't know that about him. I, I met him. He used to come into the right room he was the only one who did but uh, just to hang out but he was a yeah, he was a great guy yeah now there's a guy who by by way of, of transitional device he described his life I think he started off at Smith Barney out of college as a lab rat and he saw gosh I could be doing this and making my father happy but I'm gonna be at this cubicle I'm gonna be miserable they're gonna send various different performance reviews and performance analytics things at me or I can break away from this and take the hard route out and and it really hit me when I read this in that in my 20 years of, of professional experience, I've encountered this kind of dehumanization so many times. And it was it was actually a sadder read than Disrupted was because it seems like we're, we're in this state of, of resignation or learned helplessness to this. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I tried at the end to put... Uh, uh, a sort of forward-looking and a, a happier spin on the book by writing about companies that that uh, have recognized this problem mm. and are trying to to address it. But um, yeah, it's a tough situation. This book starts with me getting all this email and letters um, in response to disrupted from people telling me their own uh, horror stories and. Um, from that, I realized how 
widespread the, this unhappiness is at work. And then I, I was trying to figure out from there, you know, what what are the causes? Can you boil it down to just a few things? I think it's, I think there are a lot of reasons. But um, uh, but yeah, it's it's a it's a, a scary situation right now. Well, it's a dystopia, and let me take you to where it kind of all fell apart for for you and I, mm. right? You were at Newsweek. I was at Businessweek. Newsweek uh, was a glorious publication. I used to hear legendary stories about the editors, the Walendas, and oh, the right. expense accounts, and and the Washington Post company, the, the erstwhile parent company, was really flush. And I, I remember in college, there was a dream internship that I wanted to get at Newsweek because it paid like $800 a week. Could you imagine wow. that? Yeah, but that's probably more than they pay Newsweek, now. Newsweek, right? yeah. <laughs> now, Newsweek was... was snuffed out, right? And it was kicked to the curb by its parent company, and you found yourself, somebody had moved your cheese, and you had to reinvent, right? At a, at a, You weren't exactly a 20-year-old or somebody who could go out and, and take one of these millennial jobs with unlimited LaCroix in the refrigerator. So you did take that job, and that was the genesis of your first book, kind of the misadventures of an older person in this, in this Boston startup. But what was so poignant of that is out of that absurdity, all of these letters of, of heartbreak and depression and devastation that you got and people telling you that this is actually quite endemic. Yeah, and it isn't just the media business. I mean, uh, there are, well, there are other industries that are being disrupted, maybe not as uh, severely as the media business that we were in, but it's also happening at companies that aren't really... Uh, being disrupted, it's it's happening inside the companies that are doing the disruption. That's what I found shocking. I, I, I would have thought, I guess naively, that, boy, you know, uh, if you were lucky enough to get a job at Uber, wow, that must just be, you know, the best job ever. Or if you even got the lowest job at Facebook working in the cafeteria at Facebook, that must be, you know, amazing. Or, uh, an Amazon warehouse worker. Well, that should be the equivalent of, you know, the jobs people used to get on the uh, the assembly line in Detroit building cars where you could be uh, a, a blue-collar worker but make a really, really good living um, and have a middle-class life. And that was shocking to me that even the companies that are growing and disrupting and making a lot of money are, are not um, treating their employees well. Well, you said you you call it grow fast. I'm quoting you in the book. Grow fast, lose money, go public, cash out. You pump millions or billions into a startup so that it grows rapidly. You generate hype, flog the shares to mom and pop investors in an IPO, and scoot away with the loot, close quote. So what gets lost in translation is employee morale and building something for the long term and people feeling like family and there being longevity in in the mix. I mean, I heard it so many different times. We're all free agents now. Yeah. And and it's weird that 10 or 15 years ago, there was uh, a Dan Pink book. Was it Free Agent Nation or something? Anyway, that, that idea sort of started bubbling around and it sounded good at that time. It kind of sounded almost empowering that you're you know, a free agent, you take your services wherever you want and you get paid, uh, you know, what the market will support. And boy, it'll be great. You'll have all this freedom and control. But it, it has turned out instead to be the gig economy, which is, uh, you know, very exploitative. So, yeah, it hasn't turned out to be what we, we thought it would be, um, this I- idea of us all being free agents. And, and I think... Um, 
I think that's all driven by investors and their desire to get uh, to 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 not distribute wealth fairly across the organization, but to keep as much of it as possible for themselves. As you wrote in the book, we have a new compact with our employers, which involves jumping to a new job every two years, and for many people means having to take charge of finding health benefits and figure out a way to save for retirement, things that our employers used to handle for us. We have a new work culture that celebrates overwork, exhaustion, and stress. And when I read that, Dan, I wonder if this is mostly a function of that enormous you know, seismic event, the cataclysm of 2008, the Great Recession, which put millions and millions of people out of work, which suddenly disenfranchised all these people. Millennials entering the workforce or competing with people who um, were in the workforce maybe for decades who were willing to take menial-type jobs or entry-level jobs just to get the foot back in the door. And it was understood as kind of the compact that by default came out of that is that, no, you're not getting benefits. No, we're going to roll you over and make you a permit temp, or uh, we expect you to, um, you know, various different things like kick in, um, you know, give back in the, the, the days that we would give off. I mean, it turned that the tables had really turned when our unemployment approached 10%. And it wasn't as much a function of Silicon Valley and its, its kind of school of, of BS management imposing these things on the economy as just a very sick and sad, near depressive economy. Yeah, and I wonder if that will turn around a bit now that there's you know full employment and, and things are different. But it certainly seems to me that you're right. The 2008 downturn and economic collapse uh, is what is what well, was one factor that enabled the uh, the gig economy, right? So you see. Uber and Airbnb and Lyft and all these other uh, TaskRabbit all sort of spring up in the wake of that collapse as all these people are put out of work and they're scrambling for for anything. And well, this is the best you can get. Um, so yeah, I think that that downturn certainly accelerated that that um, that business model. Well, talk to me about Uber because it's, it's been held up as kind of the apotheosis of the mobile workforce, that you could actually variableize your career. You could take something that was a depreciating asset in your garage or in your driveway, in your car, and turn it into money. And there was something that was really liberating about that. And there wasn't anything embarrassing about a journalist maybe gigging on the side to fill in the cracks. But you show us the kind of the ugly underbelly of that. It's a, it's a very dehumanized, almost Stanley Kubrick-esque environment where these drivers aren't even interfacing with human beings. They're they're trying to impress uh, computers on the other end in an algorithm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, what is it? David Heinemeyer Hansen at Basecamp calls them the automaton class, I think, that, that essentially, you know, what Uber would ideally like would be a car that drives itself to have no human drivers, to have no human in the in the chain at all. But for now, you need to have a human. So um, let's make that human operate as much like a robot as possible. So, yeah, that that driver never really deals with a human manager. I mean, his his or her manager is a, a piece of software, and if their rating uh, goes below a certain number, the machine turns them off and. Um, uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a weird situation. I don't think really that's what the well. Remember, we used to call it the sharing economy before it became the gig economy. But the sharing economy, yeah, originally was what you said. Well, I have a spare room in my house, and I could I could rent that out to people, and so someone doesn't need to get a hotel room. Or I have a car, and it doesn't do much, <laughs> so I could uh, 
let someone use my car, right? And or I could go use it and drive people around a bit. But um, now it's become a thing where people actually make a living doing it, and it's it's not really uh, doesn't really provide well enough. And then you have the the second order effect, which is that Uber and Lyft are now destroying the value of uh, taxi medallions and and destroying the living that someone could make as a livery driver or a taxi driver. And so you have livery and taxi drivers in New York committing suicide. Um, one thing that struck me as I was working on Lab Rats was that if you just looked at Uber, you could see on the one hand, there was a very startling story about an engineer at Uber mm-hmm. committing suicide from the pressure and the stress. And then you had at the other end of the value chain, so to speak, you had drivers killing themselves. And you start to look at like, wow, what's in the middle? You know, what's in the middle that's pushing out in both directions uh, that's causing that? Um, and I think it is that that business model. Um yeah, I remember reading a Bloomberg article circa 2012 or 2013 that the value of a taxi medallion in New York City at the time, I think since the early 80s, outperformed the S&P 500, oil, gold. Seriously? Oh. That, and actually, yeah, within a system like that, it's a version of indentured servitude in the medallion and that you're getting in and kind of earning out your uh, livelihood in that. But whose fault was it? I mean, if if you know, medallion owners got greedy or if the system got greedy and if the cabbies over years, and, and I, I absolutely agree that they have to be able to afford more than a subsistence living, that it was just untenable and on, on rainy days you couldn't get a car for the life of you, especially to go to a place like LaGuardia when you needed Ugh. it. So this was inevitable. It had to happen. And disruption is never neat. Yeah, and maybe you're right. And maybe and maybe what will happen is that the 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 new model will settle out in a way that allows Uber and Lyft drivers or whoever the driver is uh, to to make a, a living that's, uh, you know, a decent living. Uh, it may be that uh, this is a temporary phenomenon, that that um, the, the price has gone way, way down, um, uh, but it will it will swing back because it won't be supportable. And yeah, and you're right. It's hard to say. Well, I'd like to just go back to a world with no Uber and Lyft, and we just had taxis. It was a terrible system. But if you could uh, uh, combine the the convenience of the the Uber and Lyft model of you know sending a driver out um, with economics that made sense for drivers, that would be the ideal situation, and customers are happy and drivers are happy. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzai. We're talking to Dan Lyons, author of Lab Rats. Uh, Gretchen Rubin, the author, said, I love Dan Lyons' book, Disrupted. With Lab Rats, he takes his critique of the modern workplace to the next level to show how Silicon Valley's sometimes disturbing ideas about how to entreat employees now pervade many workplaces. This is a fascinating, thought-provoking, hilarious, and sometimes herring account of current work culture. Dan, I got to tell you, when I first joined uh, Business Week back in 2005, I was known as that young, you know, Bucky Bronco, that cowboy, the guy who would just walk in, de- regardless of department, and pitch any sort of story and, and, and step on toes and everything and get the cover stories. And, uh, you know, now in my advanced age, 
uh, with a with a larger prostate and some oh. gray hair. Uh, I realize I've been aged out of that system. The standard now for a person, if you're lucky enough to get one of these coveted masthead jobs, and it doesn't have to be peculiar to, to magazine publishing or journalism, is you're young, you're in your 20s, you could come in on the weekends, you could pull really long hours, you could be a, a perma-temp. Um, and... You know, it's like that movie Logan's Run. I don't remember the sci-fi thing. As you, if you become old, they kind of sacrifice you to the heavens, and then they ah. go back to the mill and get another twenty-something. Yeah, that's, that's hilarious. Well, how how old are you? I'm forty-two, but that's I gotta young. tell you, I feel like an old really? man. No, 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 no media organization, no digital media person is gonna go seek out a forty-two-year-old. I mean, and I didn't, I didn't work with Slack. I didn't do half the things the twenty-somethings are doing these days. Wow. I definitely felt that ageism hit when our magazine was acquired into a bigger media organization. There was something about the nimble easygoing 20-something that was willing to go from six-month contract to six-month contract that was just ineluctably appealing to people who are hiring out there. And I think that I am among many people in their 40s, and I, I hate talking to people in their 50s and 60s who have felt aged out. I am sitting here just stunned that you're 42. And I think you're probably right. But just the, what you just said, that I'm 42 and no digital media organization is going to hire me. Um, wow. I mean, that's... I mean, think about it. I mean, 42 is... Uh, I used to be a contender, Dan Lyons. I used to be desirable. No, I, 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 I used to have a shock of jet black uh, hair and everything, but you know. But but it. But I got to tell you, I no. It makes you, it makes you realize life comes at you fast, and a lot of these people who've wow. who've opened their hearts to you and everything say that they're, you know, they're spit out of the system within a kind of a five six year window. See, I was thinking the line was about fifty, and I could sort of. I mean, I don't think it's right or fair, but I could sort of see. I guess I've come to sort of accept fifty, but forty. I mean, so so. so I mean, what are we? So what, do you what, is, what is it about where that? everybody's going to be well, what under forty? Well, what is? Well, what is the demarcation? Is it when they become parents? Is it when right. you have and you know four people on the health care plan? You mm. have parental leave and other things. And it, where does the ages? And that's really what I'm trying to get in. Where does it kick in? Do they become more expensive? From a healthcare perspective, certainly pensions don't really exist by and large anymore. We're in a 401k culture. Mm. Um, why is there such an aversion? I would think that experience should be valued. Maturity should be valued. Um, knowledge should be valued. But you, you hear, especially when you unpack these Bureau of Labor Statistics reports, of all these older people that have effectively dropped out of looking for work. Yeah, and, and it hits me when I, I, I use Lyft rather than... Uh, uh, Uber, Uber, but but whatever the same drivers. But I am often struck by the fact that the well, sometimes anyway, the guy driving the lift is a guy about my age, and I can tell from the way he's dressed, or the way we talk, or the things we talk about that he had a job at some point. You know, had a middle management or uh, a higher kind of job someplace. Was a corporate guy, and. And they often will sort of say things in kind of like a, not an embarrassed way, but like, well, I'm kind of just doing this to keep busy or, you know, uh, that is just for, you know, kind of for fun or I do this a little bit part time and get out and meet people. And um, anything, no, it, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's weird. And, and, and I think in 
not that long ago. In your 50s and, and halfway through your 60s, you were really banking up a lot of money. You know, your kids were through school. You, uh, you were finally making some serious dough. And that's when you really, really put a lot away. Um, and now, yeah, the, the, the idea is, well, no, that, now you're done. Like at 50, you should be able to retire. The world is expecting you're retired at 50. And, and uh, I had a friend from high school who uh, put it one, one day we were out and, and he's been through something like me and he's now working at a big corporation. I don't want to say where, but doing something that he never thought he'd be doing. It's not a great job, but it's a job. And he said, we're the lost generation. You know, the, the people 10 years older than us, they could kind of quit in... 2008, 2010, they were, they could call it early retirement. And then there were the younger people who were just coming in with this deal from the get-go. And then we were the ones who kind of came in. Like when I started working, companies had pensions. They had, you know, old-fashioned real pensions. I had one at Forbes. And uh, so, yeah, the, the rules kind of changed halfway through our career. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where the line is. And I suppose it depends on the the company and on the industry. And what is it specifically about Netflix? I remember hearing on NPR that there's this HR type cult over there where they say it's really, really nothing personal if you get fired here, if you get let go. You've just outlived your usefulness. You graduate from us. And it's a way of life. We, you know, we shed we shed staff all the time and it's creative destruction on steroids. But it actually makes for a very paranoid and sad place. It's really it's shocking to me in that you see such a joyous user interface in Netflix and some of these great programs, and you must have a high EQ to sign off on things like Stranger Things and documentaries that point out, you know, foibles in human nature. But on the flip side, it's a, it's a, it's almost like a sweatshop type place to work in. You're always paranoid that you're going to get fired by design. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, yeah, and they're very proud of their culture and their culture code, and they had that, uh, um, what is their line? We're a team, not a family. And yeah, you should expect to be fired. And, and there's, the other one is there's no shame getting cut from the Olympic team. And, and it's like, dude, get a grip. I mean, you're, you're talking about people working in call centers. These are customer support reps who are hooked to a machine and, and, a, and a headphone, you know, headset, and answer calls all day. And, and that's, it's hard work. It doesn't pay very well. And, uh, but it's not the equivalent of being a professional athlete. It probably doesn't, you know, uh, and you can't treat people like, well, sorry, you got to go by. I don't think. And it's funny that they take all this pride in their, in their culture. But then when you look at Glassdoor and look at their ratings and how their employees rate them, maybe you see the good ones, but you also see a lot of people saying, oh my God, this place is a nightmare. It's like this, um, you know, it is like a sweatshop, uh, and they're they're really not happy. Um, but they they have become, in terms of their culture, they become very influential. There's a lot of other companies that kind of want to learn from them. Um, so, so yeah, I think they posted the manifesto to SlideShare, and all these other people across the valley share it, and VCs take it as gospel. But in seeing that, I was never impressed that you know correlation and causation. Does does this kind of culture uh, bring out the, the the kind of the the excellent kind of Emmy winning uh, uh, culture that gets people to subscribe and pay ever more for their streaming accounts and 
and now the company was briefly worth more than Comcast and NBC Universal. I don't see that necessarily as being connected. Maybe they were just good in terms of Ted Sarandis and the various people around them that acquired films. And if you apply that discipline to call center people or business development people, does it make for better returns? Can you say, for example, that Netflix had the best performing stock over 10 years explicitly because of this brutal, brutish culture? Yeah, I don't know. And, and that's and that is the argument um or the debate, or the same, you could say the same about Amazon. I mean, on the one hand, you'd say, well, Amazon's massively successful. I mean, I'm an Amazon customer. I, I, I love the service. I, I, I use it a lot. And as a, as a stock, you know, it's clearly, a, you know, it's been a winner. But um, did they have to treat people that badly and that brutally? I don't know. I, I think it's possible to be successful and profitable um, and sustainable and treat people well, um, but uh, you know, I guess others would argue that that no, that that, that the brutality is uh, on the that the employees are necessary victims uh, of this uh, of the of the model because the model is built to develop d- deliver the best possible product and service to the customer, and so the employees are the uh, are the collateral damage in that effort. But collateral damage, I mean, let's just take that at the granular level. Amazon got a lot of bad press for parking ambulances <laughs> outside of its distribution centers yeah. in the summer, as opposed to, you know, retrofit them and make it a humane place, have ambulances on standby in case people collapse, right? Deal with the after effects of it, not intervention, not, not really interdiction. Also, you had people complaining about um, really being terrified of going to the bathroom, using bottles. It kind of reminds me, I hate to say this, at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. And wasn't that 1912? These kinds of things that we had the progressive movement in the United States to kind of teach us and, and unionization and everything and worker protections. It seems like they've really fallen by the wayside. And, and this is not an incidental company. This is at times, at turns, the, the largest company in the world run by the wealthiest man in the world. Yeah. And I wonder if again, you know, you're starting to see some efforts to organize in Silicon Valley. When all those people walked out at Google, I actually thought that was a really significant thing because you know they're not walking out and striking for better working conditions or you know better pay, but more about how are women treated in this workplace and why did these uh, executives who abused women why did they get these enormous payoffs when they left? And I mean they're, they're more um, uh, concerned with how the business itself treats the human beings in it. And I thought that was really significant because, boy, if people at Google will walk out, uh, that means, you know, people at other places will walk out. However, you you have to think that people at Google know they can get a job someplace else. They're... um, they also know they're not going to get fired for uh, expressing their free will, or at least they probably believe that uh, for, for saying what they think. But um, boy, if the most pampered, spoiled employees in the world are walking out in protest, um, yeah, maybe you're going to start seeing other people do the same. I mean, you saw Amazon workers, was it in Europe, walked out in um, uh, on, on Black Friday, I think. And then you had um, some Amazon workers in... Minnesota, maybe, um, trying to organize and, and unionize. So, you know, we, we might be seeing the, the very first baby steps of, of, a, of a movement that would, um, 
change the, these practices inside big companies. Let me uh, bring an example to you. You, you bring the uh, instance of the nightmarish hellholes called open offices, how they destroy productivity and make people miserable. And talk about Apple's $5 billion new headquarters. You had <laughs> one top engineering executive, when he saw the arrangement, uh, he said, F that, F you, F this, this is BS. Right. Uh, he reportedly responded as such when he was shown the floor plans of the company's ring-shaped spaceship headquarters in Cupertino and realized his group would be put into open office spaces. F this, my team isn't working like this, he said, because his engineers are vital to the company. They designed the chips that power the iPhone. Apple built a separate building for them where they would not have to use open office plans, according to a blogger with tight connections at Apple. And that had me wondering, Dan... Is it the engineers, the kind of the untouchables, the people who are the beneficiaries of this largesse in Silicon Valley, who are, are the, the beneficiaries of these, these um, you know, uh, hiring wars between Facebook and Google and Apple? They're the ones that can call the shots. The lower level people, the humanities majors who barely make it into a Google or an Apple, um, they can't get up and, and organize and strike. It's the people that have the very the, the, the very valuable degrees and expertise who the companies have to really sweat to keep and hold on to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, yeah. The the uh, the engineers who who design the chips for Apple's iPhone can probably get whatever they want at Apple, and the rest of us, uh, the regular folks at Apple, probably can't just say f this, f that. I'm not going to work in an open office. Um, but I, I did think it was a great anecdote only because, um, you know, companies give you such ridiculous uh, lines of BS about how great the open office is and how they're doing it because it's the new way people work and it's how people want to work and it's um, collaborative. Um, and, and they, but they know that no one likes this. Everyone hates it. Um, <laughs> and people are less productive. They're more stressed out. Well, they end up putting on their headphones and communicating over Slack. I we we had it at Bloomberg, right. and I got to tell you know Bloomberg that was that that's what you signed up for. You knew that at the very outset, and it was nothing personal. But I always looked at it as a way to cut real estate expenses and cram more sardines into one. Yeah, can. and there's no uh, no question that that's that's what it is. I I I think I ended up not including it in Labrats, but I I interviewed various um, experts in open office design. I originally thought I was going to do devote more of the book to that. And uh, one guy was a, I think he was a professor, but he also did the consulting, maybe he was an architect, and he did, he, he consulted to companies that wanted to do this. And he said flat out, no, no, this is all about dollars per square foot. This is, this is, there's no other reason. They're, they're, you know, don't, don't, don't fall for any of the hoo-ha. Um, you know, he's on the, on the side of, of selling these things and designing these things for companies. And he said, it's absolutely for that reason, um, on the other hand, I, I, I don't know if um, if you ever worked in a a newsroom. Like I, I started off a long time ago in daily papers, and we always worked, you know, in newsrooms with these big open places. And uh, I always kind of liked that environment. I don't know why. I and, you know, in in the days when reporters were on the phone all the time, and so they were noisy places, and people smoked, and but you sort of were, you know calling over the dividers to each other and and it, it, it worked for a newspaper for some reason it uh, the the open plan sort of worked uh, but um, yeah I don't know when I see these big long tables and people crammed in you know what it looks like a lot of startups are actually in uh, buildings like old brick buildings that used to be uh, you know 
factories used to be shirt factories or whatever or you know or, you know and and the people in them if you take these photos from 100 years ago of seamstresses sitting at these long tables packed in with sewing machines and you just take out the sewing machine and you put in a laptop you it looks it looks exactly the same it's so true look at the start lehigh building in new york city go down anywhere in tribeca and soho mm. Uh, down, you know, the cobblestone districts of various areas. And it's it's incredible that that's just become the way of the world. But you can compensate what the people did not have at the, uh, you know, <laughs> before, uh, you know, in the time of the Industrial Revolution was LaCroix water. Maximum yeah, yeah. amounts of it. I mean, I've been in environments now. Now, if you're, you know, if you're at a top tech firm or something, it is generally understood that they stock the pantry with the finest uh, sodas and uh, Topo Chipo water and um, have days where they order much more than pizza. You know, you have a taco selection and there's there's vegan stuff and seitan. But the oh. flip side of that is they don't want you leaving the office. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the, the, the snacks are nice. I, I must admit, I think that's a, I, I think that's a cool idea. I, I, I like the uh, food. When I worked at a startup, I thought that was pretty nice. Um, we all know it's the reason is they want to, they want you to work longer hours. Full disclosure, we're talking to Dan Lyons. He is author of Lab Rats, How Silicon Valley Made Work Miserable for the Rest of Us. There is a, a, a disturbing chapter on the extent of surveillance. And, you know, relatedly, uh, uh. one of the top rated radio shows at Bloomberg is called Bloomberg Surveillance, and I used to co-host it, but that's oh, really? neither here nor oh. there. You give us an example. Oh, yeah. It's a, listen to it in the mornings. You give us an example. Apple reportedly plants moles throughout the organization to spy on workers. Employees call them the Apple Gestapo. Yeah. Google and Amazon encourage employees to snitch on coworkers. Amazon even provides a software tool to make snitching easier. Workday, a Silicon Valley software maker, delivers a similar snitching tool as part of its bundle of HR programs used by more than 2,000 companies. You know, Dan, I wish Stanley Kubrick were still alive and he could, he could see this. He'd have a field day with some of these anecdotes. Yeah, and surveillance is... And that's just a tiny bit of it, right? But I had no idea until I started doing research how pervasive um, surveillance is and also how how damaging it is. Uh, I mean, apparently, it really, really harms people psychologically. And uh, I mean, there are companies reading your email and sometimes it's not just machines reading your email. You almost wouldn't ma mind if, the, if you knew that all your email went through some sort of algorithm that looked for... I don't know, uh, classified information or, you know, stuff that you were leaking that you shouldn't be sending out an email or pornography or something. But, but they're often, it's not just a machine sort of filtering for keywords. These are, there's a human being reading your mail. And, um, uh, so yeah, I think it's, uh, it is, it is one of the darker things. Yeah. Kubrick would have a, would have a, a, a field day with it. Right. I mean, it's, um, it's very dystopian, very, uh, stressful. Yeah. <laughs> to wit, you talk about Ray Dalio, the founder of Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund. Now, he's one of the richest people in the world, and he's just this, this you know, he's revered on Wall Street. People send his uh, incoherent 300-word dispatches. I mean, I've never been able to understand them around. But what makes Bridgewater very unique, in addition to the fact that it has had, you know, market-busting returns and provides uh, excellent alpha and excellent risk-adjusted returns— um, this place to say is is hyper transparent is a is an understatement. In addition to watching people and following them around, nothing is kept secret. You're constantly audited. There's maybe like a Susan of Scientology where you have to submit to constant um, uh, 
auditing by your employees. It's almost like walking around naked. Talk to me about that. Yeah, and you sit in meetings and you all have a tablet. So you and I would be in a meeting and we would be scoring each other and everybody else in the meeting by giving giving out dots. I think you assign dots and somebody gets a lot of dots or no dots. And then they're very confrontational with each other. And I guess it's uh, the idea is we'll, we'll, uh, we'll all just hash it out. Some people can't take that culture and, you know, fine, they're free to go. But, but uh, the ones who stay will b- believe that they become, they become better or stronger because of it. Yeah, I think it sounds like madness. It just sounds like the worst uh, culture in the world. And um, Have you ever tried to read any of his stuff? I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not casting aspersions really on the person or anything, but I can't, for the life of me, understand his management theory. The kind of the principles, and this, this gets sent around a lot, just like you talked about the Reed Hastings Netflix manifesto and their HR school. This gets sent around on Wall Street like gospel, like it's the you know Gideon's Bible or the New Testament or something like that. And I can't, I, I sometimes have to shake my head like the Affleck duck, like what is this man saying? But because his returns have been so superior, because he has the largest hedge fund in the world, because it has such staying power, I believe that maybe he feels emboldened to go out and, and make these grand pronouncements Yeah, and about managing human beings. Yeah, and he's really rich. And so, you know, he, you know people think, well, he must know what he's doing. Um, and, and, you know, uh, he's not the only one trying to uh, come up with ways to let machines manage people. And that's the really interesting thing to me about Dalio, is not just that he has created this crazy confrontational culture and thinks it's really great and everybody else could learn from it. It's that he's now also trying to build that uh, management system into an algorithm so that you'll have a machine that sort of manages people. So you won't even need human managers. And he describes it as kind of like a GPS for managing people. So just like your GPS kind of doesn't drive your car, but tells you which way see, it thinks see, you Dan, should go. I don't know yeah. how to describe that. You, you and I, and many people encounter in their adult working lives sociopaths. But is there a misanthropy <laughs> to that? <laughs> yes. Of or course. no, really? Or of no, that's that's is, an yeah. understatement. <laughs> Look at Uber. <laughs> Look at Uber and being very open about saying we're we're very open that in the future we're not going to have drivers. Right. That this is just a stopgap measure. Is there something? misanthropic about that. Look, and, and, and I read this book, and I'm sorry to turn this into a therapy session, but all I ever want, I expected, I went to college, I did well, I got good grades, I studied hard, I tried to get the jobs of my dreams. Is it too much for me to ask to work with people who I love, who will mourn if something happens in my family, or who can expect me to kind of chip in for them if there's a, a, a pregnancy or cancer or family event going on? When did we lose that expectation? And, and to me, at this point, it feels like anybody I talk to is like, oh, son, you're talking about a lost era. It's nothing personal. We're all giggers. We're all free agent people at this point. And you're supposed to feel emboldened out of that? Yeah. I, yeah I, I'm the same way. And, you know, and yeah, and I, I, God, what you just said was such a, a moving thing in the sense that, like, I, I did everything right. I did everything I was supposed to do. You know, you told me to go to school and get an education and work hard. And, you know, uh, I, I did that. I did all. I follow, I played by the rules. And I think that's the betrayal that that people feel, that a lot of people feel is I did everything right. I didn't, I'm not trying to scam anything here. I did everything by the book. And, 
and and now you're telling me that that doesn't matter, right? And and that's part of it. Part of it is I think that there is a new class of of people who are you know either running Silicon Valley or people like Ray Dalio who simply don't really care about human beings that much and don't don't really have that much affection for human beings. And then the the the, the, the third thing is that they have an overly high regard for machine intelligence and. Um, and so, uh, you know, you know, you had Elon Musk trying to build the alien dreadnought, the factory where the, the machines would build the machines, you know, and um, you wouldn't need humans because they'll just slow things down. And then finally hitting a wall, and then Elon's famous quote as well: "Humans are are um, underrated." You know, actually, it turns out humans are pretty good at building cars. But but um, but yeah, I, I do think there's there is, I think, and I think a turning point was two thousand. I think that first crash. Uh, was a is a turning point, and that's where after that crash, that's about really when the internet really actually started to work in a in a decent way. I mean, if you remember that the internet in the '90s was it was kind of a joke, it was kind of limited, and sure. finally you got really good, and then you got mobile devices, so you had and you had you know ubiquitous 3G, 4G, uh, you know connection to the internet wherever you went, and high-speed backbones, and, and then, you know, chips got cheaper, processing power became essentially free, storage is essentially free. Um, and so you started being able to do things with machines that you couldn't do before, um, to the point where somehow, since about 2000 to now, we went from, we use technology to today, technology uses us. I, I've, I've, I've been on I was on a radio show on, on uh, NPR, a talk, a call-in show where people could call in, and people were calling in saying, you know, I um, I run a landscaping business, or I work for a landscaping business, or I'm an architect. They they, but I now have this technology layer of tools and reporting tools that I have to fill out, and it actually just slows me down. But it's it's now uh, that's my boss, and no matter where I work, I I have to. Uh, fill out all this stuff and tell the computer what I'm doing. And then the computer is measuring me and, uh, and uh, determining what I'm worth, right? Um, that, and that's creeping into every, every industry. It isn't just techies anymore who are, are feeling that way about technology. So yeah, it's a, you know, the implication is we, 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 we don't know how to measure you. I'm a human being. And you know, if you're my boss, you don't know how to, uh, measure my productivity but so let's let's you know set up this computer system and you fill this out and and I'll look at the numbers and that that data will give me this data that will tell me how well you're doing but it's um I don't know uh Dan is it possible when I was reading this and looking at all this at the very least antisocial um or sociopathic or or misanthropic behavior maybe just maybe and I'm no doctor, I'm no anthropologist, I'm no psychologist. Yeah. People who fetishize over the whole STEM education and engineering and science and technology, who, sh who by design short shrift the humanities and studying history and studying classics and reading things like 1984 and Orwell and Kubrick in, in film class, don't see the very inhumane implications of their fetish with science and technology. I mean, I'm tempted to think about that with Mark Zuckerberg's awful year of 2018 and oh, all yeah. these, these inhumane things that Facebook did. Yeah. 
uh, for example. Facebook being this, you know, the, the, the most admired maybe media company and advertising company up there with Google, but they sold their souls in so many different ways, right? They sold their users information. They did anti-human things, behind-the-scenes things. They helped the Russians ostensibly, you know, rig the election here in the United States. It turns out Sheryl Sandberg, who was the face they brought in for humanity, <laughs> enabled a, a third party that did opposition research with a tinge of anti-Semitism about George Soros. I mean, how do you how do you run into stuff like this? This is what they teach you in humanities in the first year of college or the final year of high school. Yeah, I, I do think you're right. I think you're, you're on to something there, that... that uh, yeah, you have sort of uh, engineers or an engineering culture in charge of companies. Um, but that guy at that Google, James Damore, who almost wrote the anti-diversity yeah. law, right? You, you kind of felt for these people saying like, you know, w- women do this or can't do this. Like, no, how do, how do you guys not realize that diversity, even in portfolio theory or the McKinsey study that you cite mm-hmm. in your book, that the more diverse companies are successful – and even though year after year they come out and give give a promise, you see the same monolithic results. It's the same bros running this company, hiring the same kind of people from Stanford at MIT and Caltech and Carnegie Mellon, and the same results year in and yeah, year out. Yeah, I, I I am amazed at, at the blinders, right, that they that they have in some ways. And and um, yeah, I, I, you would think exactly right just from portfolio theory alone that you would be casting a wide net. Well, you'd think that VCs would cast a wide net and be looking everywhere. But in, but in fact, no, they just, you know, they, they're sort of, a, there's a herd mentality in, in venture capital. And I, and I think a lot of the problems actually arise from that. Who, who controls the money is sort of where the, uh, where the problems begin. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's a, it, it, it almost defies logic that the, the way they're behaving. It doesn't, it isn't, smart. It isn't, it isn't working. I mean, they haven't created a big, successful company in Silicon Valley in 14 years. I mean, Facebook is the last company out of uh, Silicon Valley that operates at scale and makes a profit, you know, and, and really throws off a lot of money. Um, so, you know, you can argue, or I, I argue that, that uh, this approach isn't working. It, it, it's making a lot of money for venture capitalists and a couple founders, you know, for a small number of people as you flip these things into the public market. But it's not benefiting anybody else. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think that's the, 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 the biggest argument against this model is that it just isn't working. It's not, you're not producing great companies anymore. And, and, and they did used to all the time, all the time. You know, you have late in the book, you said conventional wisdom among Silicon Valley VCs has been that gig economy companies can't survive unless they categorize workers as 1099 contractors. That's how Uber categorizes its drivers, for example. By some estimates, using the 1099 model cuts labor costs by 30%. But then you give us the counterexample of uh, Q, this very atypical tech startup that could have gone the very different route, that could have taken the big VC bucks, but but opted for slow cooking. Talk to me about that. Yeah, and, and it's, it's an interesting story. I'm glad you mentioned Q, because I, I love that company. And and it's kind of an experiment that's playing out in, in real life, in, 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 in an economic experiment, um, where... Uh, they're essentially people would call them the Uber of office cleaning right? or Uber for janitors. So it's uh, the, the 
managed by Q is the full name of the company, but people call them Q. They will, you know, you can contract with them to send a crew to hire, to clean your office. Okay, great. And uh, instead of having all those office cleaners be contract workers who are just getting paid by the hour, uh, the CEO of Q decided from the beginning to make them all employees with uh, real salaries and benefits and 401k plans. And um, his argument is that this isn't about, or it isn't just about being a nice guy, but that if we make our employees really happy and treat them really, really well, they'll want to stay. And if they stay, they'll provide uh, better service to our customers because our customers won't have a new crew coming in every week. They'll have some uh, stability. And so our customers will be happier and we'll have greater customer retention. So although we'll spend more upfront for our, our labor costs, it will pay off in the long run with, um, with happier customers. And it's almost too early to say whether it's working. Um, maybe in five or 10 years, you'll be able to say this. But the, the uh, CEO of Q, uh, whose name is Dan Tarrant, really, really believes that this is, is going to work. And, and so that's, yeah. And, and, I, and I think there are others in the gig economy now maybe making the same bet. But, um, but we'll see. We'll see how it works out. And you wrote, Q has nearly 800 employees, 600 who work in the field, and 200 office workers. The company operates in New York, L.A., Chicago, Boston, and San Francisco Bay Area and has 1,300 clients. Sales are on track to nearly double in 2018. But what really stood out for me, and you talk about, Taryn, is and, – and we throw around empathy a lot. You see it on, on LinkedIn kind of charticles and whatnot. It's one of those – you know, empathy and vulnerability. But this guy, look at his background. He studied international relations and urban public policy at Johns Hopkins. I literally never took a business course in college, he says. During his undergrad years, he worked as a community organizer in Baltimore and interned at a law firm in New York with Aaron Brockovich on environmental cases. In high school, he volunteered for Habitat for Humanity and worked on a Navajo reservation in New Mexico and at an orphanage near Tijuana, Mexico. He was part of a youth group at his Catholic church that was active in social issues. I got interested early on in social justice, he said. Um, when he founded the company in 2014, he said the company didn't have enough cleaners, so he himself, the CEO, had to kick in. Quote, I was working all day in the office and then cleaning at night, quote, he says. Now, Dan, we see this in stories like undercover CEO on TV. People pay lip service to it, but very rarely do you have, say, somebody like the head of Salesforce.com or Google actually roll up his sleeves and go into a call center or go in at the deepest levels or dealing with contract janitors or employees and and trying to put themselves in their pants for an evening. Yeah, yeah. I think that, that chapter title is, is, is Everybody Cleans. That's his motto. Everybody Cleans. And he makes every new hire, no matter you know, whether it's a C-level person or any, everybody in the office who gets hired has to go out and do a shift as a cleaner. Um, and he believes that it's really important for the office workers to understand what the people in the field do for a living and how hard their jobs are. And it turns out there are other companies that do this too. Uh, Hilton, the CEO of Hilton, makes all of his managers and his, his, his uh, management team spend a week every year out in the field, either working as a uh, you know, uh, a house cleaner or a plumber or, or a cook in one of the kitchens, but they have to work in the front lines. Um, and there is research that suggests companies that do close that gap between the top brass and the front line people um, outperform 
their their competitors. Um, but yeah, Taryn, I think, is doing it almost, you know, instinctively uh, by by uh, by um, because he just thinks it's the right thing to do. Uh, yeah, and he is yeah he is kind of a social justice warrior. I mean, that's his background, and and he actually also said something interesting to me, which is that. He wanted to make an impact, and he thought, well, politics, it's kind of hard to, to really have an impact. And, and, and he, had, he looked at all these different things, philanthropy, and he came around to thinking that actually business was probably the best way to have an impact in the world if you, uh, if you did it the right way. And um, so, yeah, he, he is starting a business. He also said, I think it's, it's quoted in the book saying, you know, do I really, you know, I don't really care about clean office cleaning like the, the the actual domain that we're working in doesn't really excite me but the chance to create jobs for 800 people and better lives for them that and and promotions the other thing he found is that the biggest benefit the the, the benefit that matters the most to the people in the field the cleaning people is the chance to get promoted from inside and get a job in an office um there's this great desire for people to to uh uh, advance their advance themselves. So uh, yeah, so he, his real drive is just to make the world a better place, quote unquote, by making it a better place for those eight hundred people, or maybe someday it'll be a thousand or two thousand um, as the company scales. But yeah, that's his his burning desire. The thing that gets him up in the morning is is that. Yeah, and I and, and it's not about flipping the company or scaling it to the contours of what a venture capitalist or, or angel investor wanted. It's actually a, a human way of doing this. And I, it's kind of like, what kind of company do I want to build? What kind of people do I want sticking around with me? And he's precisely in an industry where I hear managers and owners, like you could talk to people in the restaurant industry right now or, or services industry or even call centers and wages are shooting up because no one feels a loyalty. The flip side of that is if you're not feeling loved and you're just going to jump for a wage if you're just a hired gun and anybody in the field, McKinsey will tell you that that kind of turnover and training is costly and that kind of friction is costly. And I wonder at mm. some point is the industry or VCs themselves going to have to come back and get more in tune with long-term metrics, not kind of the, the churn and burn well, mentality. Yeah. For now, they just want to make the quick buck. And I guess it's, they're, they're acting rationally in a sense, right? The VCs, because the market rewards them for what they're doing now. But yeah, I, I wonder that same thing. If, if, if they will eventually come around to, to that, you know, they, there's also interesting research about millennials where they, because the belief has been that millennials, you know, want ping pong and beer and and a fun culture and don't really care. They they want to change jobs every year or two. But there's all this research that shows that, in fact, they don't really want ping pong. What they want is better pay. They want uh, stability. Job security is a really huge thing. Some very high number said that they would actually take lower pay if they knew they could stay for 10 years at a company, if they had a chance to get promotions, to get career development. Um, so it, it I found that interesting because it it sort of pointed out that millennials aren't so different from from my generation or from anybody. You know, they sort of want the same things: health insurance, uh, uh, you know, uh, a four hundred one k, the ability to save for retirement. Uh, they, uh, yeah, and, and they would they would sacrifice certain things like like pay to get that. 
And to that to that end, I mean, in the few minutes we have left, I wonder in, in terms of policy prescriptions. I mean, this is a book about entrepreneurship and captains of the universe and managers in the Fortune 500 and Silicon Valley and unicorns and the billion-dollar lives of, of Tesla-type people and Elon Musk saying that you'll never be successful if you work less than 80 oh, hours yeah. a week. But is there something <laughs> is there something to be said uh, about a kind of a great equalizer? Like, I kept thinking... How different would the scene be if people could just take their health insurance for granted, right, if it was portable, right, right. if they weren't constantly terrified of losing their jobs, if it wasn't so hard-tethered? Um, and that that makes much more of a mobile workforce. Or if, if people weren't constantly in, in existential dread and anxiety and depression and overusing <laughs> antidepressants because everything is embedded on that identity of a job description, even though you're being told that it's a, it's an ephemeral gig economy. Yeah, yeah. I... I um... I have wondered that too, that uh, it may end up being, that this system of plugging in and, and plugging out of a job every year or two, that you're on a tour of duty, that you're a, you know, a free agent, sort of would kind of work if there were a different infrastructure. And for example, and you're right, health insurance is the big part of it, right? If, you, if, you, if health insurance wasn't tethered to your job, um, you really could unplug and plug back in much more easily. Right, you, uh, so there are certain infrastructure uh, or systemic kind of solutions that could be fixed that then would enable this new kind of 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 work model. And and then I also wonder if maybe then we're just like we uh, we talked about earlier on a different topic, but are we in a transition period where that's what we're eventually moving toward? We just haven't quite got there yet, and so we have this. Uh, neither nor kind of situation now, where we still have this health benefits um, culture from the last century that was created for a world where you stayed at the same company for your whole life, and uh, but we now have the the work culture that where you change jobs a lot. So yeah, it may be that we could rationalize those two things and 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 have a, a new model that really works. And finally, in closing, I mean, how is this stuff going to shake out if we see any sort of echo of the 2000-2001 oh. crash? I mean, it's been a long time coming. I mean, we thought, you and I, in writing about this for years, that in our lifetimes we wouldn't see NASDAQ 5000 again. And we clearly broke through that at the, you know, the Apples and, and Amazons and everything have become the new horsemen of tech, the the absurdity of, of life in, in Silicon Valley and in San Francisco where you have really ridiculous wealth and really abject poverty in the streets where you have to worry about what you're stepping on. Um, clearly, uh, it seems like a, a reckoning is overdue. Do you suspect that we're going to see something in that pipeline imminently? Yeah, I, I, I've kind of, yes, but I have for, for years, and I kind of got tired of saying the crash is right around the corner and, and then doesn't happen. Um, and I don't know what will trigger it. I mean, remember we thought, well, if Trump gets elected, that's gonna, that'll kill the stock market. I mean, it is really amazing to see how long this bull market has run. I mean, I know the air has kind of come out of it in the past year, but, um, and, and maybe that's it. Maybe that's the best we can do. We'll have a soft landing. But I mean, I guess it's it's not a, a, a radical thought to think that markets go up and then they come down and they sort of rationalize. But so at some point, yeah, there'll be a day of reckoning. I don't know what the effect will be. I don't know how, you know, uh, the, we're, we're looking at people who have a lot less in savings, a lot more people who have a lot less in savings now than uh, 20 years ago when the, when the bubble and the crash happened. So um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it, 
I don't know how it will play out or when it will happen. No, no, no pitchforks in Mission Hill or after God, you know, that's the thing. That's the great, the Nick Hanauer <laughs> stuff. That guy, I love that guy. Uh, yeah, his predictions that the, you know, the pitchforks are coming for us. Um, you know, and there was all this stuff about the Silicon Valley guys building these uh, bunkers, bunkers. And these hideouts and these um, bolt holes, they call them. You can, if, if the apocalypse comes, we'll just fly to New Zealand. I mean, that kind of scares me but on the other hand i think uh, those guys are pretty smart they, they must know what they're doing so that maybe they maybe they know something we don't that well of where this is all headed god i hope not uh, but yeah well if, if if it does happen you know i'm gonna hedge my bet stand lines i'm gonna open up the first persian food cart near that village of bunkers in montana ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. They... <laughs> and that will lure them out that would lure them out of their their bolt hole because it yeah they'd smell the delicious food and because they're sitting in there eating canned <laughs> goods right and that's, that's right. how you trick them. No, they're eating soy. They're drinking oh, soy, but that's yeah. inside baseball. Yeah, Dan Lyons, God, Dan Lyons, yeah. I cannot thank you enough. No. Uh, listeners, dear listeners, I urge you to read Lab Rats after you've read Disrupted. This is a really great one-two primer on what's going on with, with Silicon Valley work culture today. I cannot thank you enough, no, Dan No, thank Lyons. you. I, I, I really appreciate you having me on and and, and, uh, and reading the book. God, that was, that was nice enough. Um, but thank you. Uh, and I'll, I hope we'll talk soon. Full disclosure, you can catch us and love us on the NPR One app. It's a fine app. And on iTunes, please subscribe at link fullderadio.com. And coming to WCVE 88.9 FM in the RVA in January 2019. Do not miss that. We are agile, lean, seven sigma burnouts gigging for Lara bars until some tech bro initials our timesheets. Hopefully... I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.